You are listening to Astrology Today, coming to you live from Howe River. And <laughs> oh gosh, I'm just so excited. Okay, I should start this again. Welcome to Astrology Today, coming to you live from beautiful Sunshine Coast and Powell River, which is situated on the traditional lands of the Klaaman Nation. I will be your host, Maureen Reed, and I am an astrologer who actually also has an incredibly happy husband who just flew his brand new home-built plane for the first time today, and I get to announce it over the airwaves of Powell River. Yay, Blair! <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, back at the show, which is uh, doing something unusual this time. I am actually uh, taping this through Zoom, and so if you would like to join me, which I'm hoping someone might, um, then you can also become part of the conversation. Uh, and, but before we begin, um, where are the planets and what are they doing this week? Okay, so to check that out, go back to my episode 49, obviously after the show, and it includes what the planets are up to for the month of October. And in particular, though, this week, we have Mercury opposite Uranus. And it does go exact this week. I think it's already done that, and it's a little bit past it now. And, of course, we had the bit of the Gemini president down south, gong show, COVID, and subsequent tweeting nightmare. But we've also had some really significant... Um, programs and uh, what do they call them, uh, investigations into things like uh, the falsehood around recycling, which is just a crime. Uh, also, Netflix has a new documentary out on capitalism and the nightmare that it has created. And unfortunately, throughout that whole piece, there was never one mention of the fact that we live on a finite planet. Uh, which is going to probably be my rallying cry for a while. Okay, also CBC did a documentary on uh, the returns from Amazon, which apparently mostly just go into the dump, which is mind-boggling waste from a consumer society because it's just not, what, cost-effective? really seriously on, again, my rallying cry, a finite planet. Anyway, so what are we up to today? I'm just going to check and see. Nope, don't have anybody joining me yet, but there is hope. Okay, so I did an episode just a little bit ago um, about pointing out the fact that a sign, how can one sign, and of course the sign we're in right now is Libra, how can just that sign describe everyone born, born during that passage? And of course it can't. Um, but obviously there are other levels of meaning that astrologers have at their disposal. And so one of the ones that I want to look at um, is way down the list. Okay, so after the primary levels, which are obviously the sun, moon, the day and the night, the angles, okay, which first 
4th, 7th, and 10th. Uh, the inner planets, Mercury, Venus, within Earth's orbits, all of those, okay, Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, they are you personally, your inner life and the tools you bring to your life. And then next we have, okay, out beyond Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. They were visible to the ancients, okay, and they connect to how you and the rest of community, family, population at large, etc., how you interact on that level. But then back in the 1700s, uh, there was a major shift of consciousness. Um, and putting it that way, um, not all astrologers will look at it that way. But from my point of view, yeah, a shifting consciousness makes sense. Okay. And that was obviously uh, through the aid because none of the outer planets and there are in terms of the word planet only two now uh, Uranus and Neptune um, They obviously can't be seen with, with the naked eye So in a recent discussion um, That I listened to on my favorite podcast for astrologers and students which is called the Astrology Podcast, which is hosted by Chris Brennan. And I highly recommend um, going to that site and listening to some amazing productions that involve top astrologers in the field today, discussing numerous varieties of, yeah, content. It's, yeah, highly recommended. Okay, so I listened to one where the discussion was about how did we come up with the meanings for these other bodies, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, which for a while was a planet and is now not a planet. <laughs> and then in you know the last century, we just had an explosion of astronomical discoveries. Asteroids, thousands and then came along in 1977 uh, Chiron which was like Pluto mm, hint hint there a really oddball projectile that made this really odd orbit shape okay uh, coming past Uranus uh, into and close to the orbit of Saturn and then back out again okay so but they're all new, right? Prior to that, we had the seven and their meanings had been described for oh, thousands of years, okay? And yes, the meanings have evolved and shifted according to the changes in um, society and culture, but their core meanings, no, not really. They haven't changed. And so, you know, we, we have time, we've gotten to know them, but what about all these newbies? And so the discussion was about the fact that there was sort of an assumption when I first got into astrology that the myth via things like Joseph Campbell and Young, that they were equal, you know, like they just sort of directly made sense uh, and that meanings for those planets were derived from that. So the myth of Uranus and the myth of Neptune. But wait a minute, as it turns out, <laughs> the myth of Uranus and Neptune in particular, they don't really fit with 
how we have experienced those two planets since we started tracking. So I thought I would start there just to give you that, huh, how come um, the myth doesn't match the experience? So we'll start with Uranus and his myth. Okay, so Uranus, uh, actually, who was he born from? It doesn't say. Okay, so Uranus originally, he was said to rule the universe and his name means sky or heaven. He literally was the sky, which the Greeks envisioned as a brass dome studded with stars. He was the husband of Gaia or earth. He was not only her husband, but her son. And yeah, I'm gonna come back to that point, especially with Uranus being in Taurus right now. And I see Taurus as Gaia and making all these you know, shocking announcements, which for environmentalists are not shocking. We just, they just haven't been able to get that message through. Anyway, a little sidebar there. According to the myth, Uranus came to Gaia every night and sired the children upon her, but he disliked all of them. He considered them threats to his power, though his Titan children could be quite beautiful. Uranus was so repelled by them that he tried to push them back into Gaia's womb, which caused her terrible pain. Really? <laughs> Eventually, Uranus imprisoned some of his children in a gloomy place that lay beneath the earth for Hades. This caused Gaia to resent Uranus even more, and she plotted with her Titan children to at least overthrow him. Since Uranus was immortal and couldn't be killed, only her youngest son, Cronus, which we know as Saturn, okay, agreed to the plot because he wanted to replace his father as leader of the gods. Gaia fashioned a sickle of flint and gave it to him. One night when Uranus came to Gaia, his sons ambushed him, held him down while Cronus used the sickle to castrate him. He threw, Uranus threw both the sickle and Uranus's genitals into the sea. The blood from the mutilation fell upon the earth and gave us rise to giants, very large people, and ash tree nymphs called. The Furies was one of them. And the other ones, I can't even pronounce the Greek names. You may look it up on Google. Um, okay, so, and with the genitals that got thrown in the sea, the goddess Aphrodite arose from that. Okay, so, but when, an, when I, myself, look at the transits of Uranus or Uranus in close contact with any of the seven traditional planets, I'm not thinking of castration <laughs> at all <laughs> or the excessive fathering of children. No. Um, it usually represents, um, in, on a personal chart level, people that um, step outside of the familiar um, and cause chaos and, and revolution. And so a little bit of the myth fits there. And with transits, it can bring quite stunning shocks into people's lives. Um, and chaos and revolution and unpredictability is one of its big key things, right? And so, no, he was very predictable. He 
you know, just had a huge sex drive, apparently. <laughs> but he did experience the shock piece, I'm sure. Getting castrated wasn't his idea of a good time. Okay. But the astronomy of Uranus does make sense. Okay, so Uranus takes about 17 hours to rotate for one day. Okay, it rotates in the opposite direction to the way we rotate. Okay, um, it takes 84 years to do a complete orbit. And um, there is a whole timing thing that uh, myself and other astrologers use when it comes to Uranus. Um, it also has 27 moons, which makes me think, because of that number, that maybe it has something to do with lunar mansions if we just look at the astronomy. Something I'm curious as to whether anyone has actually looked into that. Not sure they have. Okay, like Uranus, um, or like Venus, as I said before, it rotates from east to west, not from west to east. Okay, but Uranus is unique in that it rotates on its side. So it's literally rolling around the sun. Okay, so that complete deviation <laughs> from the rest of the planets, you know, in our solar system speaks volumes to um, the impact or the resonance or the synchronicity that Uranus um, is seen to have in the lives of people. Okay, so Uranus's unique sideways rotation makes for weird seasons. The planet's North Pole experiences 21 years of nighttime in the winter and 21 years of daytime in the summer and 42 years of day and night in the spring and fall. Eccentric, yes, brings shocking change as it must have when it was discovered in 1781. So we have had almost three laps to watch its effect on humans. And the following keywords have been assigned to Uranus since then. Okay, so we have things like uh, breakdown, breakthrough, change, chaos, creativity, detachment, deviance, electricity, rebelliousness, revolution. Science is often seen as being triggered by Uranus, experimentation, fellowship, future expectation, genius, universal mind, unpredictability, etc. Okay, now what about Neptune? Okay, so Neptune, um, which is currently going through Pisces, and it has a great affinity with Pisces, and back when I first started studying astrology, um, Pisces was given Neptune, um, Neptune was given to Pisces as its primary ruler, kicking out Jupiter. But since I've returned to astrology, I have adopted the more traditional view, which boots Neptune out and puts Jupiter back there. But there is no doubt that Neptune has an affinity for Pisces. It's that um, energy of going beyond normal consciousness um, into uh, the multiverse, etc. And of course, right now, Neptune is there. Um, yeah, so kind of congruent with plagues and all that other neat stuff. But what about the myth? Okay, so Neptune was a god of the ancient Italians 
who was not associated with the sea. Um, Saturn was the father of Neptune and Pluto and Jupiter. His mother was Ops, Ops, the Earth Mother, so it's sort of like a Gaia. He also had three sisters, Vesta, Juno, and Ceres. Those are the asteroids that we currently, most astrologers do track. It is said that Neptune's father swallowed his children, and it was his mother who saved her kids by tricking Saturn, okay, so that was his father, Saturn, right, into swallowing a stone. In his attempt to get rid of the stone from his belly, the children were released. They then turned on their father, teamed up to defeat him. After Saturn was defeated, the three brothers divided control of the world amongst themselves. Jupiter took, took control of the sky, Pluto became the ruler of the underworld, and Neptune became god of the sea. Okay. Um, so, you know, if we just left it at Neptune was the god of the sea, that would make sense. But here are his characteristics. Okay, Neptune is known for his violent nature and temperament. Yeah, that does not fit how we experience Neptune. There are many stories that depict him as being difficult, vindictive. His behavior is said to reflect the unpredictable nature of the sea. According to one tale, it was his unpredictable nature that caused Neptune to make an attempt to overthrow his brother Jupiter and become ruler of the underworld. However, he failed in his attempt. Neptune was also, his violent temper was associated with earthquakes. Um, and so, you know, they would give offerings to the god of the sea in order to prevent earthquakes. Well, yeah, it, uh, again, the myth is not really congruent with the spaciness of a Neptune transit, where boundaries cease to exist, um, where experiences of other universes, multiverses, spiritual, et cetera, et cetera, uh, where the lure of drugs and alcohol to escape. Okay, so some of the words that go, that we now use with Neptune are things like addiction, anxiety, compassion, confusion, uh, martyrdom complex, mysticism, nebulous, Oceanic consciousness, oneness, dissolution, ecstasy, elusive enlightenment, savior complex, self-sacrifice, transcendent, uh, a higher octave of Venus for some, and nothing about earthquakes and violence, right? You know, that kind of goes more with our experience of Uranus. Okay, so what gives? Um, now, Neptune, if we look at his astronomy, unfortunately, doesn't really add a lot. Yeah, this one, the astronomy doesn't help much. Okay, Neptune takes about 16 hours to rotate uh, once a day. Uh, it has, uh, takes about 164 or five years to orbit the sun. It has 14 moons, which are named after sea gods. And nymphs. Uh, so yeah, not much to glean from that. Moving on to what used to be <laughs> um, the next planet in our solar system um, was Pluto. And of course, 
it's only recently been discovered in 1930. And I will be putting up the chart of um, Neptune. And so um, you'll get a chance to see it uh, later today. And um, I'm just going to do it up for myself so that I can look at it. Yeah, the discovery chart. So discovered on um, February the 18th, 1930. Uh, Pluto was just rising over the horizon when it was, you know, announced to the world. And it was immediately, you know, tagged as a planet. But in 2006, it got majorly demoted. And okay, so let's talk a little bit about Neptune. Okay, so now considered a dwarf or planetoid, uh, it has a really unusual orbit, elliptical. Okay, so sort of egg-shaped. Uh, Pluto is sometimes closer to the sun and us than Neptune is. Pluto has a very colorful history, and that is the problem. How can we possibly know its effect in less than 100 years? We haven't even seen the first Pluto uh, return, obviously, 1930, 248 years. Yeah, it's going to be a couple 100 years before we know. Okay. It is smaller than Earth's moon. And when we did a flyby uh, with a spacecraft thing, right, that we sent out years ago. Big surprise, there's a heart-shaped glacier the size of Texas and Oklahoma on it. Um, it has blue skies, spinning moons, mountains the size of the Rockies, and it snows, but the snow is red, okay? Um, and so that was done by uh, the New Horizons spacecraft, uh, July 14th, 2015, when it made its historic flight through the Pluto system. And in the years since that groundbreaking flyby, nearly every conjecture about Pluto possibly being an inert ball of ice has been thrown out the window or flipped on its head. Okay, now, Pluto's orbit around the sun is unusual compared to the planets. It's both elliptical and tilted. Most of the other planets all fall within this nice, neat elliptical band. Not, you know, they get high and they get low in that. But whereas Pluto is tilted at um, quite an angle. Okay, so uh, Pluto from 1979 to 1999 was near perihelion, which means it's closest place to the sun. During this time, Pluto was actually closer to the sun than Neptune. Um, okay, so and that tilt is 57 degrees and it exhibits uh, a retrograde rotation like Venus and Uranus. So we have Pluto, Venus and Uranus who spin the opposite way to the rest of us, okay? Dwarf planet is a member of a group of objects that over orbit in a disk-like zone beyond the orbit of Neptune called the Kuiper Belt. This distant realm is populated with thousands of miniature icy worlds which formed early in the history of our solar system about 4.5 billion years ago. 
These icy rock bodies are called Kuiper belt objects or trans-Neptunian objects or Plutoids. Okay. Now, Pluto has five known moons. Charon, which I used to get confused. I'm like, are they talking about Chiron? No, they weren't. So Charon, C-H-A-R-O-N. Also Nix, Hydra, Herbosol, and Styx. This moon system might have formed by a collision between Pluto and another similar sized body early in the history of the solar system. Chiron, the biggest of Pluto's moons, is about half the size of Pluto itself, making it the largest satellite relative to a planet. Its orbit in our, okay, its orbit, Pluto is at a distance of 12,200 miles apart, so between the two of them. For our comparison, our moon is 20 times further away from the Earth. So Pluto and Chiron, Chiron are often referred to as a double planet. Okay, and the other reason for that is the orbit around Chiron, Chiron's orbit around Pluto takes 153 hours, the same time it takes Pluto to complete one rotation. This means Charon never rises nor sets, but hovers over the same spot on Pluto's surface. The same side of Charon always faces Pluto, a state called tidal walk. And which makes me wonder if there aren't symbolic meanings <laughs> that should over time start to come out with this unusual astronomy of Pluto. Pluto's other four moons are much smaller, less than 100 uh, miles wide. They're also irregular shaped, not spherical. Unlike many other moons in the solar system, these moons are not tidally locked to Pluto. They all spin and don't keep the same face towards Pluto, which is kind of, we're tidally locked with the moon. We only, we've never seen the dark side of the moon. We only see the same face constantly. Okay, so how has that changed? Okay, like I said, I will have to put up the charts of Pluto's discovery and his demotion, along with the timing of his close orbit, which is from 1979 till 1999, when he was closer to us than Neptune. It was during this time that I studied Pluto as a marker of the evolutionary journey of the soul. A style of astrology that was proposed and taught by a fellow by the name of Jeffrey Wolf Green. Okay, uh, Pluto was traveling through the last half of Libra, all the way through Scorpio, and by 1999 was at eight degrees of Sag. The intensity of those times might have just been about Pluto's nearness to us and not that he was in Scorpio. Um, because I, I remember after he left, which was close to the time that I shut down my practice 20 years, odd years ago, um, I was beginning to notice that with Pluto going across personal planets in Sag, that their experience wasn't as intense as it had been earlier, okay? Since heading back to the far reaches of the solar system, his challenges seem more manageable. 
Um, I can speak to that personally. I had Pluto conjunct my moon um, 19, eight, or 2018 and 2019. And um, it was actually, a, I wouldn't say pleasant, but an integrative um, passage that um, I had, you know, sort of looked ahead with a bit of anxiety to when Pluto was going to be with my moon. And yeah, it, it had its moments, but nothing like when it uh, was so close, closer than Neptune um, during its transits through Scorpio. That was pretty intense. Okay. So, and I would have asked, okay, if I had had someone else on the show with me today, I would have got them to sort of maybe comment on their experience of Pluto, um, because it seems to have changed. Okay, so what else do we know about Pluto? It comes out of a belt of debris called the Kuiper Belt, um, and so does Chiron, okay. Um, who also has this unusual orbit, but his goes, he's inside Neptune. So he goes from Uranus to Saturn. Um, and his orbit is only 50 years, not the 248 years that is um, Pluto. Okay, my focus for today's show was going to be just on Chiron, but I kind of needed to give that background just so that you understand that Chiron was only discovered in 1977. And so um, we have not had a lot of time with it. Okay, but I recently listened to a podcast again by uh, Chris Brennan with the author Melanie Reinhardt and their conversation covered the astronomy of Chiron and the other centaurs that have been discovered recently about 250. And the fact that Pluto has been downgraded from a planet to an object very similar to Chiron. The implications for seeing effects of these bodies when placed in a chart, chart bear new consideration. So a little bit first about the Chiron, the Kuiper belt, the Kuiper belt, pardon me, K-U-I-P-E-R. And I will be posting a link to a site, um, uh, an astrologer site that gives some really nice graphics that give you an idea of these uh, other bodies and how they interact with the orbits of what up until recently have been the only planets that we've looked at. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, just to take you back to, um, and I've since recently realized that I actually went to my first conference in 1981, not to give away how ancient I am, but um, back then, you know, of course, there weren't computers, and I did have to embrace a fairly simple astronomy um, because I had to actually do chart calculations. I actually had to do the math. And so that did anchor me in um, an understanding of the orbits of the planets in the relationship to the Earth. But now, but and this now seems pretty important, did not really inform my understanding of the meaning of the basic planets I was looking at. Walking back in, I can see there has been an explosion of new objects to place in one's chart. 
Okay, and some of that explosion is coming from this Kuiper belt. It is a circumstellar disk in the outer solar system extending out from the orbit of Neptune, which is about 30 astronomical units from the sun to 50 astronomical units from the sun. It is similar to our asteroid belt, which is between Mars and Jupiter, but is far larger, 20 times as wide and 20 to 200 times as massive. Um, and it's the remnants from the solar system when it formed. While many asteroids are composed primarily of rock and metal, most Kuiper belt objects are composed largely of frozen volatiles, termed ices. So this is methane, ammonia, and water. The Kuiper belt is home to three officially recognized dwarf planets besides Pluto. So Eris, Sedna, and Nakey Nakey, and I actually found some other names. I suspect there are more names coming out. Okay, and there is consideration that some of the other major planets, their moons, such as Neptune, Neptune's Triton or Saturn's Phoebe, may have originated from this region. In other words, got captured by those planets. Okay, so I am hearing talk about um, these minor planets, Eris and Sedna. I have heard those names mentioned a number of times in my, you know, listening to podcasts and stuff. And I'm like, huh, what are these things? So I thought, well, you know, this is the episode. I'm going to actually just kind of dip in and check them out. Okay, so, and it speaks to, um, I mean, they actually think there are even bigger planets even further out. And hopefully none of them have really wild elliptical orbits because that could be just devastating <laughs> to our solar system. Okay, so these two do have um, orbits that do bring them reasonably close to the inner workings of our solar system. So let's first look at Eris. Um, is the most massive and second largest dwarf planet in the solar system. It was discovered in 2005 at the Polymer Observatory. It was named after the Greco-Roman goddess of strife and discord. It takes 557 years to make one trip around the sun. Its orbit is well out of the plane of the solar system planets and extends far beyond the Kuiper belt zone um, and that and beyond the orbit of Neptune. So this one doesn't get that close and currently in its 50, 557-year orbit is currently tracking through Aries and it's at 24 degrees Aries right at the moment. Now Sedna, is a large planetoid, okay. Um, okay, its distance is about 85 astronomical units from the sun, about three times as far out as Neptune. Its surface is one of the reddest among our solar system objects. Um, it is not known to have any moons. Sedna has an exceptionally long, elongated orbit taking it approximately 11,400 years to complete. 
and a distant point of its closest approach to the sun is 76 um, astronomical units. Um, and it is hypothesized, suggests that its orbit may be evidence of a large planet beyond the Neptune, beyond the orbit of Neptune. Note that Sedna's elliptical orbit um, creates some rather strange anomalies. A, summer, a summary ephemeris of a Sedna has been produced um, and it moves through half of the zodiac signs during its perihelion closest past the sun in about 1500 years, which means at the other end of its elliptical or orbit when it's furthest away from the sun and it's moving at slow, slow a Sedna takes about 9,000 years to go through the other six signs of the zodiac. While we don't, they haven't created an ephemeris for that far part of its orbit, there has been one calculated for the nearer one, okay? And it just happens to be in its nearer orbit to the sun right now. Okay, so when it gets to its perihelion, which is closest it gets to the sun, it will be in Gemini and it only takes 25 years to zip through Gemini. And right now, Sedna is at 28 degrees of Taurus. Now, what jumps to my mind is uh, the descent into uncertainty that is a bigger plague at this moment when energies from our outer solar system come pay us a visit. Makes you wonder when it hits Gemini. Okay, so planetoid or centaur. A search of the internet will give a graphic of the Kuiper Belt. Like I say, I'm going to put up a link to the site that I discovered because that visual really helps you to get uh, what's happening out there. Okay, so the ones though that dip into um, the inner planets in our solar system, those ones are called centaurs. Um, so, um, whether perihelion or a semi-major axis between those of the outer planets. Centers generally have unstable orbits because they cross or have crossed the orbits of one or more of the giant planets. Almost all their orbits have dynamic lifetimes of only a few million years, but there is one Saturn and Centaur, which I can't pronounce, it's number 514107, which may be in a stable, though retrograde orbit. Centaurs typically behave with the characteristics of both an asteroid and a comet. They are named after the mythological centaurs that were a mixture of horse and human. And that is very key, especially when it comes to Chiron. Observational bias towards large objects makes determination of the total centaur population difficult. It's estimated that in our solar system uh, that there are centers one kilometer in diameter range from as low as 44,000 to maybe 10 million. <laughs> it's messy out there. And when you see, especially, you know, they're coming out of this Kuiper belt and you look at the amount of debris that's roaring around out there, and it makes you wonder how they were even able to get a space.
spacecraft to go through that or even through our asteroid belt. But those kinds of volumes are a bit beyond my imagination, that's for sure. Because um, the universe is a very, very, very big place. Okay. So the first centaur to be discovered um, by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was 944 Hildalgo in 1920. However, they were not recognized as a distinct population until the discovery of 2060 Chiron in 1977. Now the largest confirmed centaur is Sharklaclo. In uh, coming episodes, I, I hope to talk, well, and I will, because I can see I'm running out of time. Um, I will talk more extensively about Chiron and the other centaurs. Um, yeah. Okay, so deeper than Pluto's orbit, centaurs can come in as far as Saturn and will eventually, they think, become comets and disappear. Okay, what are the implications of a demoted Pluto and the use of Chiron? Okay, so finally I get to Chiron. <laughs> okay, his mythology is, there's a lot on his mythology. And this is a time when the mythology does fit um, what people have noted in the charts um, that of clients that they have seen. Okay. Mythologically, unlike most other centaurs, Chiron comes from a different breed slash stream of consciousness. Chiron was born of a union between the Titan Cronus, we know him as Saturn, and the beautiful Oceanid or Oceanus goddess nymph named Lyra of the Mount Helion. Coronus disguised himself as a horse to avoid being seen by his wife Rhea during his lovemaking with Lyra, who also turned into a horse, resulting in their offspring Chiron, who is half horse, half human. Philyra, who is um, equated with the goddess of beauty, perfume, healing, writing, pure honey, elixir of the gods, protein of the future, abandons Chiron, is just horrified that she's produced this half-human, half-horse, in a cave on Mount Pelion, where uh, a herdsman takes Chiron to Apollo where he learned the arts of science, music, harmonics, healing, um, and other related arts of self-mastery. And so, you know, he became this healer person, okay, and teacher and, you know, yeah, um, had lots of work, let's just say. Now, he lived on Mount Helion with his consort, the nymph, Cheryl Nicole, with whom he had three daughters, Hippie and Lysus and Oparol, as well as a son, Karstas. His students include famous heroes of gods of the Greek myths, such as Aslepus, Axis, Achilles, Theseus, Jason, Pallas, Pyrrhus, and even Hercules and Phoenix. His death was the result of events that started when Hercules visited the centaur 
um, Polis in his cave, and while trying to complete the fourth task described in the labors of Hercules, the two individuals had supper and Hercules asked for wine. Polis opened a bottle of sacred wine, giving it given to him by Dionysus. But the smell attracted the other centaurs from a nearby area. The centaurs attacked in an effort to take the wine, but Hercules killed many of them using his poison arrows. Unfortunately, one of those arrows hit Chiron by mistake. Chiron was immortal and could not die, but the poison caused unbearable pain to him. So he, you know, he struggled. Uh, with trying to heal himself, was not successful. This happened for a number of years. I think in the, my source text, they did say how many, it's like 900 or something. And, and so, you know, he beseeched the uh, Mount Olympus gods for like, give me some relief here. This is never ending pain. Um, and so what was arranged is he happily gave up his immortality in exchange for Prometheus's freedom. Now, Prometheus um, made the mistake. He was human um, and uh, he tried to steal fire from the gods. He has quite a backstory as well. Um, and for his, um, you know, being outrageously there's a word in that it's escaping me right at the moment. Anyway, he was chained to a rock, had his liver eaten out, and then it would grow back. And then, his, you know, so he was in this cycle of endless pain. And so um, Chiron exchanged his life for uh, Prometheus. So set Prometheus free. Um, and in doing that, um, he, Chiron was able to die, he became immortal. And um, as a reward from the, uh, the Mount Olympus gods, he was given a place in the heavenly firmament um, as uh, a centaur, Sagittarius, actually not exactly the sign of Sagittarius in, uh, that we use in astrology, but there's another centaur out there. Okay. So his astronomy, okay, speaks to this wounded healer as well. Okay, so he has this idea of the comet and the asteroid and a plutoid. And so the whole idea of um, him being half something and half something else fits with his astronomy. In his orbit um, at perihelion, when he's close to us, um, he synchronizes with Saturn's orbit, and when he's furthest away from the sun, he synchronizes with Uranus's orbit. Now, what got me fired off with this whole journey was uh, the book by Melanie Reinhardt, which, in case this ends up going up on the website, there's a picture of the book coming up on Zoom. And um, she first published the book back in 1989 and was did about 10 years of study before she published the book the first time. Um, because as soon as Chiron was discovered, um, there was an astrologer that came up with an ephemeris and so everybody jumped on it. Um, and I heard about it way early on. And part of the reason back then that I really paid notice to it is Chiron was quite prominent in my chart. 
And, um, and so books did start coming out on it. Now, she first published in 1989 and has since revised it again 20 years later in 2009. So obviously, she's had 30 odd years of client interactions to give her the input for this book um, relative to what she sees people experiencing. And, and it was interesting in her interview with Chris Brennan, she said, I don't talk about Chiron. People talk to me with their story and I hear Chiron's um, myth come out in the story of their lives. And that's the way she's accumulated the data, okay? So I, obviously I recommend her book. Um, if you feel that any of the following, and so what I'm gonna do is do a brief outline of some of the major themes that the myth of Chiron speaks to. Okay. And the other thing I need to say um, is, okay, so um, obviously we all have Chiron somewhere in our charts, but not all of us will have a deep or meaningful stories that Chiron will speak to. Not everybody has this wild wound that they have to give something up in order to be released from it. Okay, not everybody does. Um, so here are some of the themes. Um, and it can also speak to just what happens when you marry um, the themes of Uranus with Saturn. And so the midpoint in your chart can also carry Chiron-like wounds. Okay, so chaos meets the status quo. Hmm, that's going to be awkward. Personal limits meets clarity and new vision, habit and change. Um, Chiron's path just might be the middle way between those two. Individuation, immortality, and the inner teacher. How can we heal ourselves? Finding a fix will elude us if we've tapped into the Chiron myth because he wasn't able to heal himself. He had to seek outside help in order to um, be able to relieve himself of his suffering. Okay, it speaks to the journey, the traveler, and the destination as one. Okay, so it will also um, give us the archetype of the healer, the wounded one, and the wounder, which I find that particular outline interesting because oftentimes, um, you don't hear in astrological circles, or at least I haven't run across it in my recent reintroduction into astrology. But the idea that the chart of the victim and the perpetrator was something that was looked at. But again, we had Pluto really close <laughs> when I was doing my original set of studying. And, um, and people were noting that handed a chart without a name, without any bibliography background, you wouldn't be able, you'd be able to tell that some nasty stuff might be going on in this chart, but you could not tell whether this was the chart of the victim or the perpetrator, okay? So 
those charts will look the same in terms of the difficult aspects that are in them, but it's not a given which way it goes, right? And so this kind of speaks to that. Chiron wounding can seem repetitive and a futile struggle. Repeating as it is unfinished business, it can contain ancestral, familial, or homeland pain. And when I thought of this, this speaks to, and I'll have to look at the Canadian chart to see where Chiron is. I don't think I've looked at that. Yeah. Um, because obviously the reconciliation that's been happening in various countries around the world, um, it's easily spoken to by this Chiron theme, right, of unfinished business. Things we can do for others that we cannot do for ourselves is also a Chiron theme. So possession and shamanism. And so a possession would be uh, an example of this apparently is Marilyn Monroe's chart where um, you know, people couldn't see her. They just saw her as this sex object, right? Okay, sacrifice to move on, to be propelled in the right direction, literal or personal sacred and profane. So how to put those two together, man, horse, when a part develops at the expense of the whole. So someone goes totally towards the sacred, um, denounces the profane side or the reverse. Okay, that would also be a Chiron theme. The outsider, the maverick, the wanderer, the exile, estranged from one's tribe, family, etc. Okay, so it was like he was abandoned at birth, right, and uh, had to be fostered out. So again, um, a Chiron theme. Now, Ian, Melanie Reinhardt's, she felt that this following excerpt from T.S. Eliot um, sort of expressed this journey that Chiron, if it's significant in your chart and in your life, that you will take. So it goes like this, the quest. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at where we started and to know the place for the first time. Okay. So I am seeing that I am just about out of time. And so I think I will leave the remainder for either, yeah, maybe next week I will flesh out what Chiron kind of looks like, giving some examples, maybe of uh, charts where Chiron is prominent to the um, inner planets, so Saturn, Jupiter, etc., on towards the sun, um, to sort of finish off this episode. Okay, in the meantime, just as a reminder um, that I obviously will put some stuff up on the website, uh, which is uh, cardinalastrology.ca. Um, and I'm also going to create a page. I'm going to be changing up my website so that I'm, I'm going to have a page where, you know, if I was new to astrology, this, and, you know, I met somebody that was new to it, this is what I would recommend books and websites and lecture series and schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I'm going to have a page with that. I'm also going to um, create a page 
so that one doesn't have to scroll through all of my podcasts to find what you're looking for. Um, to put them all on one page uh, with the ones that are are uh, more topical and not determined by what year it is. And so those you can look forward to happening soon as I learn more about how to manage my webpage. In the meantime, you have been listening to um, CJMP, Powell Rivers Community Radio Station. Uh, and I will be with you uh, next week. And, oh, okay, so I have to end my Zoom before I can play my music. Anyway, ta-ta for now.